Um, it's just so exciting to be here. Honestly, it is a tremendous honor to be here today. Um, like your pastors, Julian and Christina mentioned, um, I've been here for, you know, I was a part of Oasis uh, for quite a while. In fact, many years ago, I walked into Oasis, a 19-year-old who was hurting and broken. I was unsure of my worthiness and uncertain of my calling. And over the next 15 years, uh, I not only healed, but got to experience discipleship and mentorship. And I got to live out my calling at Oasis. Uh, but also, I got to be a part of beautiful, authentic, Christ-centered community right here in Los Angeles. And man, it's, it's not just like coming to a church today in LA from New York to speak. No, it's so much more than that. For me, it really feels like coming back to home, coming back to family. And I am just so incredibly grateful for the investment that our founding pastors, Philip and Holly Wagner, made in my life over the years. I'm really grateful to the familiar faces that I'm seeing, even in the front row, familiar faces that I'm seeing from back in my time when I was living here and at Oasis. I think Fred Rogers, I love Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers, he puts it best, you know, and he, he used to say, uh, think about the people who loved you into being. And I feel like that I want to say thank you to these familiar faces here in this room because you loved me into being, and I also want to honor and say thank you to your pastors, Julian and, and Christina, for the generosity and support they have been and the friends that they've been to me and my family over the years. So just thank you. It's, it's an honor. It's, it's more than coming to speak. It's, it's being home. It's been about seven years. I've changed a lot. You have too, but here we are in a reunion of sorts, and I'm thanking Jesus for you. And I'm coming here today with my family, with my husband, Ben. Uh, ben, you could stand up and just show a wave, say hi. Yeah. And um, our six-month-old daughter, Quinn Raya, she's actually in kids right now, Kids Church. They're, you have the best kids team. Yeah, I know, right? I know. I know. I think we have a couple other photos too to show of her. Look at that. Just yummy, right? And that was our first photos with her, newborn photos as a family. I'm just showing you these photos, honestly, because I'm biased. I think she's just really stinking cute and wanted to share with you. Like, let's just take a moment. Uh, I, I am just so grateful for, for Quinn and stepping into this new season of motherhood. And Ben and I, actually, we just celebrated our fifth wedding anniversary, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, just a couple weeks ago. So we're basically experts now. We know everything. So if you want some marriage advice, just come talk to us after. No, just kidding. Not at all. No. But uh, man, we are just so grateful for each other, for this new season of parenthood together. It is a wild adventure. We are learning. We are growing. Every time we look at Quinn, honestly, it's like looking at a walking, breathing miracle uh, for us. Before we uh, got pregnant with Quinn, we experienced a miscarriage. And uh, narrative of infertility and miscarriage exists on both sides of our family history. And so when that happened, we were not only dealing with the heartache and the heartbreak that came with that miscarriage and the loss, but it kind of left us with a question mark on what is future going to look like for us when it comes to family. And honestly, God just made it happen. Like we weren't expecting it. And then Quinn came along. I mean, okay, it wasn't like completely unexpected. It wasn't like the Immaculate Conception here, but we weren't planning. <laughs> 
God brought us Quinn, and we are so, so incredibly grateful for her. And, you know, I share that to say that I think we all, at different moments of our life, different seasons of our life, we have different experiences where we, we go through some, some things that cause us to really... It's a stretch for somebody to say, trust in the goodness of God, because we look at our circumstances and say, wow, it's so different from that. And it's hard to cling to hope. It's hard to make sense of that when we look at what we're dealing with. And if that's you in this room, or you're having that kind of experience, you're going through a loss or an uncertainty or just the pain point of longing and waiting, uh, I just want to encourage you today that God is kind. He is so kind. He is good. He is for you. He is is faithful and he will be faithful to you. I think that's a message that we need to hear, that we need to be reminded of, that we need to live in a deep revelation of, especially this time of year. Because here we are in December, it's the holiday season, it's the Advent season, and we hear all of these messages of jolly and merry and bright and cheer, and we sing joy to the world and we preach peace on earth. But if we're really honest, we're not all that peaceful and joyful. Often we end up being drained, depleted, discouraged, disappointed, depressed. And it's something that Santa can't fix. Mariah Carey can't fix. You know, another cheesy rom-com, even the new ones coming out on Netflix can't fix. You know, we can max out our credit cards with the Black Friday specials and the Small Business Saturday and all the things. But December 26th is still going to come, or January 1st for some of us, and we're going to go, wow. I still have to face the fatigue or the longing in my soul that is going unfulfilled or the disappointment or the discouragement or the loss or the uncertainty. It's still going to be there. You're just going to be a little bit more tired having to deal with it. Now, I don't want to come across as Scrooge by any means. I actually love this season. I love the Christmas season. I'm the person, by the way, who starts playing Christmas music on like November 1st. Some of you are judging me right now. That's okay. Here's my take. I would wait to play Christmas music till after Thanksgiving if Thanksgiving would do better. Like, honestly, then come up with some catchy tunes, have some traditions besides turkey, and then I'll change my choices. But right now I stand by my life choices. I'm going to be playing the Christmas music. Like, I love this season. And as happy as a Christmas tree makes me, it's never going to bring lasting peace, joy, hope, love. Let's not confuse participating in holiday traditions with experiencing the things that only Jesus in intimacy and connection and relationship with him can actually bring. And so today I'm going to go a little rogue on us because I was, I was thinking about what I would speak on here and what we would teach on and focus on today with the message. And as I was praying, I felt like it, I'm not supposed to be teaching on like a Christmas theme or something that is holiday focused. That's great. There's a place for that. But instead today, after prayer, I felt led to just lead us through a simple and powerful study of Psalm 23. That we could just take a pause from the hustle and bustle of the season that honestly, for many of us, we throw ourselves into to distract us from what we really long and need and, and, and what only Jesus can bring and instead just be in the presence of the good shepherd for a minute and let him bring to us, oh, the comfort, the care, the provision, the guidance, the leadership that he can bring. Now, Psalm 23 is perhaps one of the most well-known chapters of the entire Bible. 
It's the Psalm of Confidence that King David wrote, and he wrote from the perspective of having been a shepherd boy himself, and he writes about the good shepherd. He writes about the leadership and the lordship of God in his life. It's short. Some of you are like, can I get an amen for that? Yes, short. Six short verses, but within these verses, there is comfort, there is encouragement, there is revelation, there is truth that has spoken to and brought courage and strength to countless generations for thousands of years. And so let's begin to read together. Psalm 23, starting in verse one. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I just hear Coolio's voice every time. I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Wow. <laughs> and David, he writes this. And it's not an abstract concept for him. Like I said, he was once a shepherd himself. And he writes this psalm. And he writes it in the middle of less than ideal circumstances. I mean, we don't know the specifics here, but he's talking about traveling through the valley of the shadow of death, that he is in the presence of his enemies, that there is fear before, or there is evil before him. This is not good. This is what we call anxious, fearful, dreadful circumstances. And yet what we read here and what we see here is not a terrified David, not a despondent David, but a confident one. Like why? Like how could David be so confident, confident to say in the midst of all that he's facing, I will fear no evil. Well, the answer is found in the very first verse of the Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. See, David is able to overcome. He's able to overcome the fear, the anxiety, the circumstances around him, not because he's resourced enough, not because he's brave enough, not because he's smart enough, not because he's talented enough, not because he's networked enough. In fact, he's not even the hero of the story here. God is. He describes himself in this Psalm, David, as sheep. I don't know if you've been around sheep, maybe not. It's Los Angeles. I come from New York City. As city people, maybe not. But we probably watched a documentary where there was one. I don't know. But sheep are pretty lowly, defenseless creatures. Like on their own, they are vulnerable and weak. That's how David describes himself. He chooses to associate himself. He's like, I'm going to have an honest moment. I'm pretty weak. I'm pretty vulnerable on my own, but I'm not on my own because the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. That's the source of David's confidence because he's on the receiving end of God's care and provision and guidance and direction in his life. Now the, the theme of the Lord as a shepherd is one that is not new and introduced in Psalm 23. Throughout scripture, we see this as early as the book of Genesis. Jacob calls God the shepherd, the stone of Israel. In Isaiah chapter 40, God is described as the shepherd of his people who feeds his flock. In Micah chapter 7 verse 14, the prophet cries out to God 
asking for God to return to his ways as the shepherd with his staff over his people in the days of old. In the New Testament, Jesus clearly identifies himself as what? The shepherd in John chapter 10. He says, I am the good shepherd. And he lays down his life for the sheep that he knows his sheep and the sheep know him and are known by him. This carries on into the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 13, Jesus is described as the good shepherd. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter, the apostle and disciple who wrote that epistle, was listening to Jesus and had an experience with the good shepherd because he calls us to believe in a Jesus who is the shepherd and overseer of our souls. And a couple chapters later in 1 Peter chapter 5, he refers to Jesus as the chief shepherd. But there is one unique distinction in Psalm 23 because David doesn't say that the Lord is the shepherd of God's people. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. (laughs) And it's that one word that makes all the difference. He wasn't just having faith in a God who kind of takes care of things. I think sometimes we do that. We go through our life. We come to church. We sing the songs. We amen. We go about our business. We, we read the books and we're like, yeah, God's good. He's faithful, but it's kind of this big thing for us. Like, yeah, God is going to take care of things, you know, like it all works out in the end in the universe. No, 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 friends. It's not just he generally takes care of things, but he specifically takes care of you. And when you get that revelation, it changes everything. I love Charles Spurgeon, his commentary that he wrote on Psalm 23. He said this, the sweetest word of the whole is that monosyllable, my He does not say the Lord is the shepherd of the world at large and leadeth forth the multitude as his flock, but the Lord is my shepherd. If he be a shepherd to no one else, he is a shepherd to me. He cares for me. He watches over me and preserves me. I think we need to really get this revelation today because some of us are going through difficult, less than ideal situations. We can relate to the place that the Psalmist David is in here. Some of us, we're facing a health diagnosis for ourselves or a family member, a loved one, and it's scaring us. Some of us are not quite sure how we're going to pay rent in the new year. Some of us are dealing with the aftermath of a betrayal, a loss, a heartbreak. Some of us right now are realizing that the things that we've been pursuing are not as satisfying and fulfilling as we thought they would be. And now we're not sure what to do and how to move forward. Some of us are dealing with the repercussions of some poor choices that were made and we're not sure how to pick up the pieces. And some of us are just trying to rebuild our lives, ministry after 2020 and the last couple years threw us a whole lot of curveballs and a whole lot of mess. I don't want to make light of those situations or the circumstances or the gravity of your situation. But I do want to encourage you today. You don't have to lose your confidence. You don't. Because your good shepherd knows you. He knows the details of your life. He knows what you need. He knows when you need it. And he is with you. Your good shepherd is taking care of you. So... With the rest of the time that we have this morning, 
I want us to take a closer look at this psalm and just unpack some of the ways in which your good shepherd is actively taking care of you. The first is this. He brings you comfort, care, and rest. We read it before, and I want us to read it again. Psalm 23, two through three. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads us to the care, the comfort, the rest that we need. Like a shepherd leads his sheep. And the implication here is that the shepherd knows best. That he actually knows better than the sheep what the sheep need and when they need it. My daughter, she's six months. You saw her, she's very cute. And she's figuring out some things that she needs. She already knows that she needs milk. And she will cry, oh yes, she will cry to get it. She knows that she needs an adequate amount of attention and affection, and so she will coo and she will squeal to be seen and heard. But one of the things that she is still figuring out that she needs is rest. <laughs> rest. She is definitely unaware that mama and dada need some rest too, you know? She's figuring that out. And... Uh, I don't know how a, a six-month-old, I mean, she, she's been alive half a year outside of the womb, and she already has FOMO, but she does. Like, she will stay awake as long as she can during the day because she does not want to miss out on anything, and she will fight. I mean, she will fight falling asleep for nap time. But I'm her mom, and I know that she needs that rest. I know it's actually really good for her development. It's good for her health. It's good for everybody around her. It's, it's good for her awake time. It's going to be better. She's going to feed better. She's going to even sleep better at night. I know all of this. And so when she's fighting, falling asleep, what do I do? I soothe her. I comfort her. In her room, I, I, when she's in the crib, I put my hand on her. Shh, shh, shh. <laughs> or I hold her. I rock her in the rocking chair. And sometimes it's 30 seconds, sometimes it's a few minutes, but it's a few minutes, but eventually she stops crying in protest and instead, like a quiet and a peace and a calm, kind of fills the space. It's like my presence has had its effect on her and she falls asleep. And when I'm looking at her in those moments, holding her, looking at her asleep in the crib, I'm reminded of my own tendencies with God the Father. How often when I'm afraid, when I'm anxious, when I feel like I'm not in control or I'm missing out, what do I do? I resist, I fight even the very rest and comfort that Jesus desires to give me the rest that I actually need. In Philip Keller's commentary on Psalm 23, he wrote a book from a shepherd's perspective and he, he noted something really interesting about sheep. Sheep need a number of conditions to be met in order for them to rest, that they don't actually naturally rest well. They need to be in an environment where they're not afraid. If they're startled or they're anxious, then they're not gonna rest. And they're social creatures and animals, and so if there's any relational friction amongst the sheep, they won't rest. If there's flies or parasites that are bothering them, they won't rest. And finally, if they're hungry or they're not sure where food is gonna be coming from, they won't rest. The shepherd needs to deal with their fear, friction, flies, and famine in order for the sheep to experience rest. Now, thankfully, 
we have Jesus. And Jesus has taken care of all of that for us on the cross when he paid the ultimate price for us to not only experience eternal salvation, but experience relationship with God right here in the here and now that allows us to experience God's care and his comfort in the midst of whatever fears we're facing, whatever relational friction we are up against and dealing with as the body of Christ, whatever pestilence comes our way, whatever lack comes our way, we are taken care of. We simply need to receive the rest and the care and the comfort that he has for us. Not only does he provide and bring us this comfort and care and rest, but he leads and he guides you. Psalm 23, the second part of the third verse reads this. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He leads us. He guides us, which is really good news because I'm here willing to admit that I need a guide. (laughs) I need that kind of leadership in my life, especially when I'm up against less than ideal situations. Because often, if I'm not letting Jesus lead and guide, what's happening is that I'm going to react instead of respond. I'm going to run in fear instead of walk with intention and purpose. I'll never forget one of the times I was the most scared and afraid I've ever been in my life. One of the most, not probably the most, but one of the most. Fifth grade, yeah, long time ago, fifth grade. And it was when I was walking through a haunted house. Now, I've never wanted to walk through haunted house. I don't think they're great. If you want to hear me praying, like speaking in tongues, doing the whole bit out loud, then just force me into one of those things. I mean, I just, it's not my speed. But I was in fifth grade and I was at, it was at my school's fair. It was their harvest fest because I went to a Catholic school, St. Joe's Catholic school in Tucson, Arizona. And so they didn't have a Halloween thing. They had an alternative thing, harvest fest, but we still got in the costumes. We went to the thing. And so we went there and they had, you know, all of these booths set up and they have, you know, gifts and they have candy and they have things for the kids and the family. And then they had for little kids, they had something called the fun house. And then for older kids, they had the haunted house. And fifth grade and up was when you could go in the haunted house. So it was a big deal as a fifth grader to be able to first experience the haunted house. Now, the haunted house was like not a big deal, really. You know, it was low budget, ran by parents. But as a fifth grader, it was a big deal. And so my friends all wanted to do it. I did not want to do it. But peer pressure is real. So I said yes. And I found myself in this haunted house. I was dressed up that year as an old lady. And I won funniest costume of my class. Um, and uh, I had this like white wig and I, I put like, you know, a face, I, I painted up my face so it had like some wrinkles on it. And I wore my great grandmother's, one of my great grandmother's dresses, which did smell like mothballs. It was kind of on, on point, on brand. And then I had um, a metal cane, an old metal cane. And again, this is all before I really was informed and knew about ageism. So I'm so sorry, but uh, it, was a, it was a fun costume that year. So I was dressed and I'm in this costume, I've got my prop, I've got my cane, I'm walking through, and I'm at the back of the group of my friends because I'm just terrified. I'm trying to hide, and I just want to be over with this whole thing. My heart is racing, pounding, and then all of a sudden I feel, in the middle of this haunted house, which I don't remember much about it, it was dark, there were like spooky sounds, there were like volunteer parents who were dressed up, and they'd like jump in front of you and be like, ooh, you know, that was it, really. But there was a fog machine, so you couldn't really see a lot. But all of a sudden I felt this something, this like hand grab me, grab my ankle, like through the fog and wouldn't let go. And I get so terrified. I open my mouth and I don't know if you've ever had an experience like this where you're so afraid that you open your mouth to scream, but nothing comes out. Like, like that's all that was happening for me. So I'm trying to scream, but my friends don't even hear me. So they leave me behind. Like I'm just stuck here with my ankle. I don't know where, I don't know what's going on. And at that moment, I'm so afraid 
I'm alone. It's dark. I don't think. I just do. What is that from like Maverick, Top Gun? I don't think. I just do. And so I just, I took that metal cane and it was like, ba-bam, you know, like just one really hard. And I just heard that, you know, and they like let go. And then I'm running. I'm just trying to catch up with my friends. I'm running. I'm running. They're already outside of the haunted house. I get to the exit. This poor adult parent volunteer jumps in front of me. All I remember is they had like a cape or something with their outfit. And they were like, I won't let you pass again. I think, no, I don't think anymore. I do. I just grab that metal cane and I'm like, yes, you will. Boom. Right across the chest. <laughs> they move. Right. So I run out. Now I'm not afraid of the haunted house. Now I'm terrified that I'm about to get expelled from school and be arrested for battery. And so I just said to my friends, bye, I got to go. I find my mom. I'm like, we got to go. We got to go. We got to go right now. She's like, why? I'm like, I just got to go, you know, for the next week of my life. I was like, that's it. They're going to find me out. I'm going to get caught. That's it. But I never got a phone call, never went to the, you know, uh, principal's office. So I feel like I got off the hook the following year. I go to the same event and I see outside of the haunted house, this big sign that says no props allowed. Never there before. There was a volunteer, a parent manning with a table and a box, not allowing kids to go in, like drop the prop off here before you enter. I was like, I did that. I think I did that. You're welcome. But I'll never forget that feeling of being in this haunted house. It's dark. I can't see where I am. I'm disoriented. I feel alone. And what do I do? I make some questionable choices. <laughs> And I feel like, in all honesty, even though I'm not in fifth grade and it's not a haunted house and it's real life now, I still kind of do the same thing under pressure. If I don't have the right guidance, if I don't have the right leadership in those dark spaces, then things aren't going to go so hot. They're not going to go so well. I think if we're all honest, we can admit to that. We need the guidance of the good shepherd in our lives. And here's what's fascinating about this uh, picture of leadership and how Jesus leads us. As the shepherd, and we're the sheep, the sheep don't actually know where the still waters are. They don't know where the green pastures are. They don't know. They just know where the shepherd is. That's actually all they need to know. Some of us were like seeking clarity out, like, oh God, show us, show us what's around the corner. What's my five-year plan? What's your 10-year plan? God, does it match mine? Like we're trying to figure out all these things. And God is like, you want clarity. How about connection? You want answers about your future. How about intimacy with me? Because if you can just seek me, then don't worry. The future is going to be okay with you. If you just seek me, don't worry. I have a plan. I know where I'm leading you and it's good. He gives us leadership. He gives us guidance. You know, another thing is he protects you. He protects you. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now it's interesting the language that David used here. Words matter in scripture. We should think about them. We should break it apart. We should mull over them, right? He uses the language of a valley. A valley is not a mountaintop and it's not a meadow. It implies being surrounded, implies being hedged in. Have you ever felt like the difficulties in your life? It's not just like one, but it's like surrounding you, <laughs> you know, like it's, it's one here and then there's a difficulty here and then there's a challenge here and there's one here surrounded or that you feel like the thing that you're up against is so big. It's so overwhelming. It's so expansive that it really feels like it's closing in on you and you're not quite sure where you're going to get relief. You're not quite sure how you're going to get out of this. That's the language that David is describing here. And he calls this valley that he's in the valley of the shadow of death. 
which is interesting. He doesn't call it the valley of death itself, but the valley of the shadow of death. There is a distinction here. Uh, a few weeks ago after church, I was walking with my best friends and their twin girls, uh, three years old, and we we're walking to grab lunch afterwards and we're walking on the sidewalk and Nova, who's three, my goddaughter, she's holding my hand and she looks down and she sees her shadow and she goes, my shadow. And she giggles and thinks it's amazing. And then she takes like three more steps and goes, my shadow. And she did that for like the next 10 minutes. I was like, we'll never eat again, but you're very cute, you know? And so uh, we finally got to, to lunch. But I was thinking when I was walking with her, wow, I can't remember the last time I was amazed by my shadow, let alone paid attention to it. And the thing about shadows that is just this like really annoying trait is they're always following you, aren't they? <laughs> and they appear to be darker and larger than the actual form but they have no substance in and of themselves. I think the enemy would love to get us to believe that the circumstances that we're facing, the difficulties that are chasing us, that follow us are bigger and darker than they actually are. But we have to remember with the good shepherd on our side that mm, they don't actually have any power to overcome us or overtake us. And notice again, the language that David uses here, because he says through. Yea, though I walk through the valley. He's not saying that this is his final destination or his permanent residence. He's not wondering, oh, how long? Oh, should I build a house here? Let me settle into the valley. No, he's traveling through. And this is a really important thing for us to hear and receive today because some of us, we can really relate to the valley of the shadow of death. And we've been having conversations with God that are like, God, how long am I going to be in this situation? God, how long until this thing changes? God, when? When is there going to be the breakthrough, the turnaround? What's happening? How long? Is it just going to be this way forever? And God's like, change your language, change your perspective. Yeah, you're going through it, but you're just going through. Yeah, you're going through it, but you're just going through. This is not your final destination. This is temporary. Because you're with the good shepherd, you don't have to give up hope even in the valley of the shadow of death because you're just traveling through. And I wonder what would change for us if we had this revelation, if we lived with this revelation, if we really believed that some of the hardships and difficulties that we're facing right now, that they are in fact temporary. That we are reminded of a kingdom perspective. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18 tells us, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. If we believe this, how would we live our lives differently? I mean, what kind of peace would we have that maybe we don't have right now? I mean, how would we sleep at night? How would we pray differently? How will we plan or hope for the future differently? Friends, he's with you. You're just traveling through. He's protecting you. Not only does he protect you, but also he provides for you in the face of opposition. Psalm 23, 5 tells us, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. I love this word picture. It's pretty amazing. And it's an interesting thing because he, he doesn't say, you eliminated my enemies, but that you prepared a table for me in the midst of my enemies. <laughs> Experiencing the goodness of God doesn't mean that we are void of opposition in our lives, but that even in the midst of opposition, we can experience his abundance and blessing. 
He says, you prepared a table for me. The table, it implies bounty, abundance. Prepared for me, foresight and care. Before me, connection, intimacy. I love this picture. Even in the midst of your difficulties, God has blessing for you. He has provision for you. That's a beautiful picture. And he's not just putting together some leftovers. You know what I'm saying? Like, let's microwave something for this. Oh, wow, I didn't know you are going through that. Okay, let me figure out something for you. No, it says that he's prepared in advance something for you. I, I love the holidays. And one of the reasons I love the holidays in my family is because since however long I can remember, my family makes tamales every Christmas. Anybody else? Yeah, great tradition. And by my family, I mean my mom. <laughs> my mom really does a lot of the work. She gathers the women together in the family, and we all help out. The men do stuff too, but I mean, they do stuff. The women, they get together, and we make the tamales. And, uh, and it's a huge ordeal, honestly. It's not something, if you, if you know tamale making, it's not something that you just kind of whip together. Oh, people are coming over last minute. Let me make some tamales. No, you have to get all the stuff you have to prepare ahead of time. You don't just make a, a handful of tamales. You make dozens upon dozens of tamales. And you, you make them for the Christmas meal and every meal after. And then you freeze them and you give them away as gifts. And then you keep eating them for all eternity until next Christmas when you refill with all the dozens and dozens more. But what I've learned, especially as I've gotten older, is that my mom is not doing this just to keep a family tradition alive. She doesn't put in all the time and care because she feels obligated to. There's a subtext to the time and the energy and the resource that she puts into tamales for us as a family. And the subtext is this, I love you. It's her way of showing her deep love and affection for us. Friends, I want you to recognize that in this season, God has blessing prepared for you and there is a subtext that heaven is wanting to speak to you. Jesus himself, God the Father would wanna say, hey, I love you. I'm not just taking care of you. I want you to see my loving hand in all that I do. Oof. He has a feast prepared for us. So do not cower in the face of your enemies. Don't run and hide from the face of your enemies. Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Take a seat. I have a table prepared for you. I have a feast for you. Feast on my goodness. Feast on my faithfulness. Feast on my provision. Feast on my love. Feast. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him. One last thought. There's so much more we can unpack from this chapter, just these six short verses. But with the time that we have, I, I want to mention that one other way that God cares for us clearly in Psalm 23, we see it, is that he gives us hope for the days to come. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 23, 6. This is how that psalm ends. I love it. Surely goodness and mercy are going to chase after me. That is not the voice of despair or doubt or anxiety. It's the voice of confidence and trust in the good shepherd. That even in the midst of less than ideal circumstances can say, you know what, but my future, my future is going to be mercy and goodness chasing after me. My future is going to be that I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Like that is my future. And it's so important that we hear this because fear tries to tell us a different story. Even when we're feasting on the abundance of God's provision in the midst of opposition, fear is whispering, oh, enjoy it while it lasts. The other shoe's going to drop. You better be ready. It's not going to be good for you in the end. Ooh. No, no, no. Mercy. 
God's goodness and mercy are going to chase after me all the days of my life. And it's not because my future will be void of difficulties. In fact, Jesus is really upfront with us. He says, you can expect difficulties. He says, here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I've overcome the world in John 16, 33. So our hope in the future is not because of the current landscape of our life. And it's not because we have somehow figured out a way to delay the inevitability of difficult situations. The reason that we can have hope for the future is because our hope is not in our circumstances at all. It never has been, it never will be as followers of Jesus Christ. Our hope is in the Good Shepherd. It's because he is with us that we can smile at the days ahead. And so as we bring our time to a close, I just want to encourage you with a couple ways that you can actually receive the care and the guidance of the Good Shepherd in your life. Beyond this message, how can we make it real practical and simple? There's a couple ways. And the first one is this, spend time. Can I encourage you? Spend time with the Good Shepherd. Spend time with him. Wake up 20 minutes earlier. Open your Bible. Read a chapter. Pray. Spend time with the Good Shepherd. Get to know his voice and his leading in your life. In Joshua chapter one, we see Moses was this great hero and leader of God's people, but now Moses is dead and Joshua is the successor. And of course, he's dealing with some big shoes to fill and a lot of fear. And God speaks to him in Joshua chapter one. Many of us are familiar with this passage. And he says, this is my command. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. What I want us to understand here from this verse is that courage follows connection. Confidence and faith comes with intimacy. Some of us are looking for faith. We're looking for courage. We're looking for hope. Then just be where the good shepherd is. Spend time with him intentionally. Number two, follow the good shepherd's leading. John 10, 27, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. This is so simple. But then when Jesus tells you to do something, like do it. You know what I'm saying? We can't actually receive the care and comfort of the shepherd without experiencing the guidance and leadership of the shepherd. They go hand in hand. We can't separate the two. So let's just be followers of Jesus. Even if it means setting our ego aside or doing things that are uncomfortable for us or having to repent or confess, it is actually all a part of the ongoing discipleship journey of being sheep who are letting the shepherd lead our lives. And finally, ask with confidence for the care, protection, and provision that you need. Just ask. 1 John 5, 14 tells us this is the confidence that we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Sometimes we don't even know what to pray. Have you ever been in that spot? We're like, God, I don't even know how to articulate what I need, but I need. That's okay, because he knows what you need. But turn to him in faith and let him bring the rest and care and comfort that he has. We're gonna worship God together in just a moment, but you know, as we are reflecting on Psalm 23 and how to apply it in our lives. I'm reminded of a time just a couple weeks ago. I was sitting in my living room with my baby girl. I was playing with her and I was thinking, you know, have you ever had those moments where you're like in the room, but you're not in the room. Your mind is just a mile away, you know, thinking and about different things. And as we step into next year, Ben and I and Quinn, we're about to embark on some new things that God's called us to, some big things. 
and we're stepping into a lot of ways as an act of obedience, just into some unknowns. And we have a lot of faith and we're really excited, but it's a lot and it's overwhelming. And like I said, a lot of unknowns. And I, I'll admit that there's been times that I've just been afraid or anxious. And that was one of those times in the living room. I just started thinking about all the things and I was feeling overwhelmed. And uh, I turned on a kid's uh, playlist that a friend had given me of just good kid's music to have playing. She works with kids, so she put it together. And I'm really grateful for it because I'm gonna be honest with you, there's a lot of really annoying kids' songs and programming out there. Like, it just, it's bad. So, um, you know, I didn't wanna have to play Coco Melon in the background. Like, some of you are not parents. You're like, what is Coco Melon? I hope you never find out, truly. I don't wish that on my enemies, you know? So... So this playlist was a little better. So it had some different songs on it and it had like a, just some kids worship songs on it. And I was like, oh, this is cute. I started listening to the lyrics and it was like, whoa. It's like all of a sudden, the spirit of God was ministering to me through this song. And I wanna read the lyrics to you. Fear not by Ellie Holcomb. Fear not for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name, you are mine. If you're scared of the dark, I'll be your guiding light. If the floodwaters come, they won't wash you aside. If you're caught in a storm, I'm a safe place to hide. Don't be afraid, I am with you. And if you need a friend, I won't let you down. And if you feel the earth shaking, I'm your solid ground. If you're feeling alone and like no one is around, don't be afraid, I am with you. Fear not for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. Don't you forget that I made you. Don't believe that you're not enough. I'll never leave or forsake you. Try to remember my love. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. And in that moment, just sitting in the living room, tears welling up. Because out of all of the fear and all the anxiety and all the things, suddenly, It was like the voice of the good shepherd through those lyrics became louder and sweeter and more powerful than anything else. And that's my hope for you in this message today, that you heard the voice of the good shepherd in your life and in your circumstance, reminding you that he is with you, that he is for you and inviting you to trust him, to seek him, to be with him and experience the goodness that he has for you. I want to pray for us very quickly, and then let's worship God together. Lord, thank you that you are the good shepherd of our lives, that we can trust you. And so today, that's what we do in faith. We just declare, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. We place our faith in you, our trust in you, and we give you lordship, leadership over our lives. We receive the care, the provision, the protection that you have for us. You are the shepherd, we are the sheep, and we are safe and cared for in your hands. Surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives, and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever. Amen. What a powerful word from Pastor Nicole about the good shepherd. Always good to take a look at one passage of scripture and and stay there. Psalm 23 is one of my favorites, and so I hope you were encouraged. Make sure that you understand that we want to connect with you. We really believe that our church is built on connection. If we're disconnected, we really can't grow. We really can't thrive. 
as a community of believers. And so if you would like to be connected to our church, go to oasisla.org forward slash connect and fill out our online connect card and somebody from our team will reach out to you. Also, as always, there'll be discussion questions in the chat so you can really take in and unpack what God spoke through Pastor Nicole today. Can't wait to see you next week. Same time, same place. Love you so much and we'll see you soon.